You can be seated. When Hurricane Katrina damaged the city of New Orleans in what seemed like biblical proportions, one celebrity pastor suggested that the city was targeted because of its sinful reputation. When an earthquake shook Haiti to the ground in 2010, a different celebrity pastor claimed it was caused by the Haitians' alleged pact with the devil made 100 years prior during the Haitian Revolution against the French. Following the 9-11 attack on the U.S., yet another celebrity pastor said pagans, abortionists, gay people, and feminists caused the loss of life. Some Christian fundamentalists are quick to blame the victims of natural disasters or mass destruction, and that's really nothing new. We can find this line of thought all over the Bible. I don't know about you, but I sure feel the tension as we're wading through these minor prophets series and some of the things that these prophets are saying. It can sound an awful lot like the dysfunctional comments that we hear pastors speak into microphones these days. In the Old Testament, sickness was always defined as a curse. In the New Testament, the disciples believed that sin in your life or your parents' lives could cause you to be born blind. It's hard to know how we should think about these things in our lives today. Did you know that Jesus was actually asked what he thought about two disasters that killed a bunch of people. This conversation is in the Bible. We're gonna take a look at this. Maybe Jesus will clear it up for us. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 13 briefly before we go to the final chapters of Amos as we close our three-week series on Amos this morning. But in Luke chapter 13, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people about all the stuff that Jesus is normally talking to a crowd of people about. And some of them come up to Jesus and they tell him how Pilate apparently slaughtered a bunch of Galileans during a protest in the temple. And then Pilate sacrificed their blood. Pilate was known for his cruelty. The people asked Jesus, were these deaths a direct result of sin and judgment? Jesus said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. Phew, we have our answer then. Sounds like Jesus is saying it's crazy to think that way. But wait, Jesus goes on. And he says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So catastrophe does seem tied to sin and repentance. The people in this crowd go on to ask Jesus, well, what about that tower that fell in Siloam and killed 18 people? What about them? Do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Well, that's still kind of confusing to me. Jesus does it again. He lets the people suffering in these examples off the hook, making it seem like disasters are not the result of ungodliness. But he says the exact opposite regarding the people standing there asking him about it. Unless they repent, they'll have catastrophic endings to their lives. 
So where is God in this? Is he the cause or not? What do you think about that? Where is God in the disasters our lives face? Does he cause them as judgment on people? What about suffering? I know plenty of people who have suffered in great ways and they did not deserve it. And in my sinful nature, I can think of some people that I feel like deserve to suffer and they don't seem to be. I don't know what to think. And I'll be honest, it makes me really uncomfortable, so I'd prefer not to think about it. Well, in true form of the minor prophets, they're forcing us to look at something that makes us uncomfortable. One of the oldest economic pamphlets still in existence, the book of Amos, has a lot to say about disasters that God's people face. And this book has been arguing for almost 3,000 years that God is in the middle of the disaster. Amos will push us to consider that hardships don't happen despite God's good intentions for his people, but that they are actually a part of God's good intentions for his people. Now that's an idea I'm willing to consider, but there's so much harshness in Amos's words. The God he describes like makes me a little sick to my stomach. I don't know what to do with all this harsh language. Like I find myself wanting to hide this part of the Bible from certain people. Like people that I know that are just looking for a reason to say no to God. I don't want them to see these things. Things like you will faint because of thirst. You will fall never to rise again. No one will get away. None will escape. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Like, that all sounds pretty messed up to me. I know God is loving and kind, yet these same harsh words are coming from his mouth. The harshest of which can be found in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos is not talking about a lack of God's word, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. This is not a case of God withholding his revelation, but of people being in such a state that they do not see it or hear it. What a terrifying thought that God would even allow that to happen. We're just doing our best down here. That would be so much worse than a physical famine of food. This is not an economic disaster. This is a spiritual disaster. Why is there this wrath from God towards the northern kingdom that he would allow this? Jonathan shared with us last week that people are comfortable. It's become toxic to their spirituality. They don't care about the vulnerable that they're taking advantage of to continue to gain their own security. There's gross indulgence and immorality, corruption of the court systems and lending practices, oppression of the poor, these are systemic sins 
cultural sins that Amos is confronting. And God says, I cannot stand this. I hate it so much that I'm going to tear it all down. And that happened. The northern kingdom eventually fell to the Assyrians. It seems that nothing would have appeased God's wrath but their destruction. How do we make sense of all this? How do we answer questions about disaster and suffering being tied to what we do or do not do? Well, to start, there's some reorienting that we need to do. We're going to say this a lot in this Minor Prophets series. Prophets don't call people to repent because God's mercy is so hard to get or because he's so angry. They call them to repent because God's mercy is so easy to get and his dream for us is so good, it's so accessible. Yes, judgment is coming, but God's desire isn't to judge, but to save. The one who judges us most finally is the same one who loves us most fully. God is so emotive in his love for us. He's so passionate about his dream for us. The harshness that we see from God when we insist on wandering away from his dream and his mercy is that same passion. These emotions from God are two sides to the same coin. Maybe they aren't in conflict with each other like I sometimes feel they are. Maybe they are consistent with each other, congruent, connected. In the final vision of Amos in chapter 9, verse 1, Amos declares, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. No one will get away. None will escape. The threshold, that's the most structurally sound of the part of the house. Like, knock down the doorposts, and that whole thing falls. This is complete destruction. This is really intense judgment. But I want us to see that these harsh images are paired with the fact that the Lord was standing by the altar. Amos pointed out that the Lord's presence was there alongside the judgment. Amos seemed to want Israel to know that God wasn't detached from even this hard work of judgment. I think that's supposed to bring us comfort if we do in fact believe that the one who judges us most finally is the same one who loves us most fully. Amos goes on in the next few verses, two through four, and the images he describes are shockingly parallel to a psalm that we often recall when we need comfort. Though they dig down to the depths below, they climb up to the heavens above, they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, they hide from eyes at the bottom of the sea. Doesn't that remind you of Psalm 139? Where David is talking about how the Lord hymns me in, he knows my coming and my going. Such knowledge is just too wonderful that I could never be separated from your presence. Is it possible that if our loving and faithful God is close by 
when judgment finds us, that maybe his right hand will hold us fast. Can awful life experiences like Israel's exile among the nations be caused by God for a lack of repentance? I think so. Jesus did tell the crowd who was asking him about specific disasters that they too would be judged if they didn't repent. But I don't know that we always know exactly what is caused by God and what is just part of being a broken human in a really broken world. But we can be sure of this. Awful life experiences and seasons of deep shaking of our spirits and circumstances can be used by God, absolutely. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a seed, and not a pebble will reach the ground. Being sifted is not the same thing as being destroyed. Being sifted does not mean not being loved. Sifting actually purifies. It doesn't destroy. God's sifting only eliminates the chaff, never the grain, not even the smallest grain. The farmer is not angry with the wheat when he tosses it around in the sieve. What follows this verse on the grain and the sieve is what seems to be the most abrupt change that you will find in this book. God is just and requires payment, and no one can escape what is owed him. And the heart of God is apparently set on redemption and love and restoration. And we're about to discover that these things can all be true at the same time. They may not be as either or as we think they are. The final words of Amos' prophecy. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord, your God. God is promising to repair and redeem the ruins, declares the Lord who will do these things. God is promising to restore them to prosperity, says the Lord, your God. In these words of Amos, God is faithful and he's personal. The Lord will do these things. He is the Lord, your God. And he is actively working on our behalves to bring us out of judgment and into a place of abundance where blessing and fruit are so abundant and come so quickly 
that there is this picture of the plowman and the reaper who usually work completely separately in completely separate seasons. But they're going to be bumping into each other because the land will be so eager and primed for producing. This spiritual disaster has become a spiritual opportunity. It's confusing to place such harsh judgment right next to such beautiful images of restoration. My heart doesn't know what to make of it. I don't want to believe in a God who punishes or shatters the pillars of my home so it comes crashing down on my head. Equally unbelievable, and in direct contrast to that, is this notion that we are fully forgiven and fully loved and accepted. Our hearts sometimes don't know whether to believe that either. Which is it, God? Are you merciful and forgiving? When we mess up and lose sight of you and your word, do you restore and redeem instead of giving us what we deserve? How close do you come to allowing us to wander so far that we can't even hear your voice anymore? Which is it, God? When we experience great trial or deep loss or worldwide pandemics or natural disasters, are you judging us? Are you trying to get our attention? Are you giving us exactly what we deserve? Are you for us or against us? Maybe asking which is it when we are experiencing shaking is the wrong question. The tension I've felt in this book of Amos reminded me of a story found in the Old Testament some 600 years before Amos. Joshua has taken over for Moses, and he's trying to move the Israelites out of their own season of great challenge and into the rest and peace that is the actual physical promised land. On their way, they have to fight some battles that would give them control of the land. And as they are approaching one of the Canaanite strongholds, the city of Jericho, Joshua leaves the people behind and he goes up to the city on his own to scout it out. And he runs into a man standing before him with a sword drawn. And Joshua doesn't recognize him, so he doesn't know whose side he's on. And Joshua asks him the very same question that we find ourselves asking God in times of trouble. Joshua asks, are you for us or against us? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. God, when disaster strikes, are you for us or against us? You should take off your shoes. This disaster is holy ground. Constantly, Amos and the other prophets teach us what we should do based on understanding who God is. We know God judges us finally, and we know that God loves us fully. And so I want to invite us all to consider when we are being shaken, 
that this is what we should do. Resist the urge to fall into the binary and broken human way of thinking. Is this God's judgment or will his mercy cover me? Is God for me or against me? These questions are in the category of very bad questions. Because no matter what we believe the answers to those are, they will lead us to a perceived reality that is going to be very difficult to live in. Amos says some things that are absolutely true. But Amos's approach leads us to good questions. Amos's approach is different than that of the celebrity pastors I mentioned at the beginning. Amos's posture is this. Is this bad thing that happened to me the result of sin? Yes, Amos is saying, yes, of course, all the bad things that happen are a result of sin. It's all a result of all of our sin. The answer is always yes. The reason is always all of us. This is what it means to be human. And Amos goes on to point out what it means to be a human who is fully loved by God. It means that God is present in our disasters. He's standing by when the thresholds shake and the pillars crush us. It means that we will always be able to find God in the terrible thing if we go looking for him in it. It means that there is this beautiful potential to allow God to reshape the catastrophe. It means that this is holy ground. The good questions that Amos leads us to when we are being shaken is where is God in this? And what are you leading me to, God? True prophets don't point out people's sin and say, see, you caused this awful thing to happen. That's a convenient claim for a false prophet to make because it shifts all of the blame onto someone else's shortcomings. I don't have to feel the grief when it's someone else's fault. I don't have to work about being part of the solution when I can blame that person way over there. True prophets resist those bad questions. And they say, we're all sinful. We're all a part of this mess that we find ourselves in. Let's turn to God. Let's repent. Let's change our minds about how we think about this. Let's look for what God is doing and let's join him because God is near. There's something sacred at work here. The book of Amos has set two options before the people of Israel. Destruction, hardship, and judgment in one hand. Glory, restoration, and blessing in the other. Both hands belong to God. And Amos closes out his book with a focus on the hand of God holding life and hope. And that still didn't mitigate the destruction that Israel was going to face. But Amos' closing is a stake in the ground, claiming God's posture with his people throughout the entire Bible. Life and restoration, love and forgiveness always have the final say. Jesus' own words to his disciples were, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, 
you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. When we have this trouble that Jesus talks about, we can all find ourselves left without answers to our questions. It's likely we're asking bad questions. And I know this is not the most satisfying response, but somewhere in that trouble in your life is that holy ground. It's holy because the presence of God is there. He's at the altar. He is present with you, and that's what makes it holy. I don't say that lightly. I have been there so many times. And in my own disasters, when I've looked for God, he's always met me there somehow. That holy ground in my life where God has been present in times of trouble, I found that holy ground in so many surprising places. I found it at a graveside. I've found it at a bedside. I've experienced that holy ground in a doctor's office, in an ER department of a hospital. I've found that holy ground in a heartbreaking text message. I've experienced that holy ground in painful conversation with people I love. I've found that holy ground in a pulpit. I've found that holy ground in the darkest, longest night that I can recall. In this world, we will have trouble. But the last words are always life and hope. The last word is life because God is always working to move us from death to life. Even when we seem bent on our own destruction. Even when we have achieved our own destruction. The last word is hope. Because no matter how far gone we are, no matter how much we have suffered, no matter how much we've been destroyed, God remains ready to replant us so that we might grow again. And on that sacred, holy ground where crushing suffering and endless mercy meet, the plowman who plants and the reaper who reaps just keep running into each other because that ground is so rich and so eager to produce life. When we find ourselves there, experiencing that shaking, remove your shoes. It's holy ground. 